Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. And that's just the way you like it, right? Amen, brother. (laughs) In this episode, we're kicking off an exploration of the fundamentals. In this case, we're going to talk water. The pre-beer substance we rarely think much about. If it tastes good, you can brew with it. And while that adage is true, it's also missing the point. As we've delved more into the subject of water, you can clearly see that water has a major impact on beer, beer chemistry, and of course, the thing that we all really care about, our beer flavor. So sit back, it's going to get wet. (laughs) But we'll try not to go too deep. Uh, Before we do any of that, please listen to these messages from our sponsors. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a hub for homebrewers since 1978. Visit homebrewersassociation.org for recipes, brewing tips, and community. Well, thank you so much for sticking around and listening to those messages from our sponsors. Remember, if you interact with our sponsors in any way, make sure you tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files so they know they're spending their money wisely. Now, water. Why should we worry about it? Well, because it turns out that water, for most of us, makes up, say, 95% of our beer. Now, maybe if you're Fred, good old Fred out there. Hi, Fred. If you're Fred, maybe it's about 85%. Yeah, yeah. If you just dry malt your beer, then it's going to be less. (laughs) Because water is the base for our beer, we need to make sure that water is doing the work that we need it to do. And now, do you absolutely have to do all the stuff that we're about to talk about in order to make good or great beer? No. Uh, There were many years where I brewed without paying a single lick of attention to my water. And now that I do, I think my water has gotten better, and so has my beer. Yeah, I kind of did the same thing, man. I brewed for, oh, geez, probably at least 15 years uh, and won awards, and everybody loved my beer. I loved my beer, and I didn't do anything but uh, add a teaspoon of gypsum for the really, really uh, hoppy ones. Uh, but I, I did discover, like, some of my dark beers and some of my really light beers, like Pilsners and Triples, just, they were okay, but they weren't great. 
And so that's what really encouraged me to get into like looking at my water and doing something about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of in the same boat. Now, these are our rules for water. And we've, we've written about these in simple homebrewing. We've written about this in BYO. We've written about this in a couple of places. We've talked about this a lot, but these are, I think, the four rules that you need to follow in order to make sure that your water is working for you. If you do nothing else, you've got to remove the chlorine or chloramine from your water. So if you're on a municipal water system like I am, you know, my water is sanitized with chloramine, I need to get rid of it. Two, know your water profile, roughly. Doesn't have to be perfect, but know your water profile. Three, do the least that you need to do. That should be a very familiar refrain to listeners of the show. And four, stop stressing. At least about water. And there are plenty of other things to stress about in this world. That's right. That's right. And maybe we should uh, take a minute here to talk about why you want to remove the chlorine and chloramine. Real quick, chlorine and chloramine are sanitizers. They're used to keep your water clean. We'll uh, talk a little bit about why that's important. Um, and the problem is that they interact with compounds in the malt pretty instantaneously. And the Reaction forms compounds that are called chlorophenols, which are things that smell plasticky, band-aid-y, medicinal. Maybe they sound good to you if you like really peaty scotch, but <laughs> if you like regular beer, not so good. Yeah, if this happens to you, you'll know. Uh, my first experience was many, many years ago. I'd read about it. I'd heard about it. But because uh, I'm on a well, I don't have chlorine or chloramine. I didn't have to worry about it. Went camping with a friend. He brought a keg along, and uh, we all went, oh, that's what happens. I I would say that chlorophenol is probably the most common off-flavor I taste in people's homebrews, um, just because people don't pay attention to that stuff, or at least a lot of early brewers don't. So remove the chlorine and chloramine, and we'll tell you how in a moment. Let's talk water, because you just mentioned you have a well. You have nice, clean, steady water that you don't have to worry about. Uh, I, however, do live in the middle of a big city that is somewhat in uh, Chaparral. It's not quite desert, but it's Chaparral. And so we truck in water from just about everywhere, including from around Denny. And so uh, most of us are going to get our water from the tap in the Southern California area. That's the Metropolitan Water District. And our water will vary over the course of the year. I assume your water is fairly steady. Yeah, um, I get, uh, I send a test into Ward Labs every couple of years or so just to check and it comes back almost exactly the same every time because we get ours from a hundred foot deep aquifer. Now, if you're not lucky enough to do that, but you also have uh, terrible water, there are other things you can do. You can get reverse osmosis water. Uh, people do have, there are home systems for reverse osmosis, but I find them to be generally uh, a maintenance hassle. Uh, they're kind of finicky and they require a lot of work. And you also do have to pre-plan. Now, I know there are going to be people out there who are saying, I have an RO system at home and it's a breeze and I don't have to worry about it. That's because you're not paying attention to the water that's coming out of it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you can also buy reverse osmosis water from, say, like one of the uh, Waterteria stores or Aquateria stores. You got to make sure that you trust that the machines are well taken care of, including the one that may be outside, say, the front of your Safeway. You can also buy distilled water. And, you know, of course, you can always distill your own water because that is one of the legal uses that we have for a still. That's right. 
Yeah, you know, I really prefer using distilled water over RO because RO is always going to have some amount of minerals left in it. And unless you know what that is, then you're just, you're just guessing. I mean, it may be low enough that it doesn't really matter. But if you just start with distilled, then you don't have to worry about that at all. Yeah. And my problem again with RO systems is I think they give people too much confidence. Yeah, right. And, you know, I see people going out and buying an RO system strictly to get rid of chlorine or chloramine. And let me tell you, that's, uh, that's, that's a very, very expensive way to go about it. Uh, we'll talk about using Camden tablets and you can buy enough Camden tablets for the rest of your life and not even come close to the cost of an RO water system. I guess buying an RO system for removing chlorine and chloramine is kind of like hunting elephants with an ICBM. So these days, instead of depending upon keeping our water clean naturally, because of course most of us aren't drawing from a 100-foot aquifer, uh, most of us are drawing from the tap, municipal water systems use two compounds commonly. One's chlorine, and it was the original sanitation agent that was used in modern times, kills microbes. It's also very unstable in solution, which is good for us because it means it's easy to remove. You can either boil it out or you can just let your water sit overnight. Let your water sit uncovered overnight, right? You need you need to let the chlorine off gas. So if you put it in the pot and cover the pot, it ain't going to happen. Most modern water systems have miles and miles of pipes, and you really don't want something that is unstable. So most big water systems now use a compound called chloramine, which is basically a molecule of ammonia and uh, chlorine put together. Uh, so it's a very, very stable thing. It's very hard to remove. And like I said, most major water systems are going to use chloramine. So, for instance, LA does. As we said, you want to get rid of those compounds because of the chlorophenols. Because, And so how do you do it? We already told you with chlorine, it's pretty easy. You let it sit uncovered overnight or you bring it to a boil. That doesn't work with chloramine. And that's the entire point behind chloramine. So carbon filters, like your good old under-the-sink Carbon filter that I think a lot of homebrewers have had or that you find in an RO system do work. I think there's an easier way to do it than alluded to early. Use Campton or potassium metabisulfite. What you can do is, and the reason why we're talking about this is, so a lot of people had been using carbon filters. I mean, when I first got into the hobby, and I assume for you too, Denny, people talked about, oh, you got to carbon filter your water. Actually, when I got into it, nobody was talking about doing anything with water at all. Good point. Problems with carbon filters is, again, I think they induce a lot of overconfidence in people because you'll use the, the same filter for months or years even. And the problem is you need those cartridges to be in good shape for the carbon filter to actually do its thing. The other thing most people do is they run their filters way too fast. And as an example of that, talking with Martin Brungard, uh, he's quoted figures before that in order to remove chlorine via a carbon filter, you have to run it at a maximum of one gallon per minute. Now, that doesn't sound too bad. But if you're using chloramine, you have to run it at 0.1 gallons per minute. Ooh, boy, that could take a long time to get your brewing water. Yeah, so that means you have to run 10 minutes in order to get one gallon. And, you know, at that point, yikes. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think how many gallons I use in a brew. Uh, it would take, a, it would take a, a day of steady running water, I think. Yeah, I mean, it would take me 100 minutes usually, like, you know, just to collect 10 gallons of water. 
Yeah, so 100 minutes, and that's longer than I want. Now, to give you an idea of reference, just so you can understand how slow we're talking about, if you go and you open up your garden hose, that's running about five gallons per minute. Even one gallon per minute is going to seem absurdly slow. Uh, The other thing I will also put a pointer in here is don't use a green garden hose. Uh, use Use a white potable water hose. They usually call them an RV hose. Or use vinyl tubing that you'd use for your the rest of your brewing process and just attach it via a garden hose adapter. You can actually check to see whether or not you've removed chlorine and chloramine. You can buy some uh, test strips. Lamotte actually makes a total chlorine test strip with a 3027G. And this is why, because of those flow rates and everything else, I don't like to use the carbon filters. Instead, we use the Campton, aka potassium or sodium metabisulfite, but generally I like to use potassium metabisulfite. And here's why. You can take a small amount of Campton, like one tablet, because they're, they get sold a lot as uh, in tablet forms for wine sanitizing. One tablet is enough to treat 20 gallons of water. So for my average brew day, I need I need a half a tablet. Right. Yeah. You, you crush it up. You put it in the water. The reaction happens pretty much instantly. I've heard of people putting the Camden in and waiting hours or even overnight thinking that's how long it takes to work. And it doesn't. It happens immediately. Yeah. And I've done demonstrations in the past where I've taken the same glass water, dropped one of those test strips into it, pulled it out and shown, okay, you can see that we've got chlorine or chloramine in here. And then taking a pinch of potassium metabisulfite dropping into the glass, giving it a stir. And then once the, the stirring action stops, dipping the strip back in and testing, you can see that there's nothing there. And and some people have been worried about, uh, you know, sulfides or sulfur remaining from the treatment. It doesn't, uh, I don't remember the exact chemical reaction, but uh, it, it, you don't end up with any loose uh, sulfides or sulfur in your water. Well, and I mean, even if you did, the amount that we're using here is so tiny that it's bonkers. Now that's that's how you'd get rid of the stuff. But you know, now the next question is, what do I have in my water? I'll start with another corollary to the rules that we talked about at the beginning, which is, don't trust a recipe that blindly adds water salts. Amen, buddy. Because you need to understand roughly where you're starting, so that you know that you're not doing something stupid. Right. If you see a recipe where they're giving you water additions, the only way that's going to do you any good whatsoever is if you know what they started with, so you have an idea where they end up. And usually the best recipes will tell you a target water profile and let you build out build out to that on your own. So how do you know what you've got roughly? Well, the easiest way and the cheapest way to do it is to look for your water district's uh, federally mandated report. You can dig most of the elements we need for brewing water out of those reports. But the problem with that is that's great, but that's usually showing you averages or different sources, different areas, but it's not telling you what's coming out of your spigot. And so there are a couple of things that you can do. One is you can go buy a, a home water kit. The one that I've used has been the uh, Lamont Brew Lab. I have that here at my house. And you know that way you can, you can play it being a chemist, right? You got tablets that you got to crush up and things that you got to titrate and all this. It's great. It's not an instant read type situation. And you're also depending upon your own skills as a scientist to be able to get an accurate measurement. I find that that's really good for doing a lot of, you know, just sort of knowing what's happening and adjusting. But the best thing to do, and the thing I think is the the gold standard, but it's not instant and it is going to cost you money, 
is to go to a professional water services company like Ward Lab, which is the one I think we both use and a lot of people use. Yeah, I've been using Ward for close to 20 years, and uh, they have wonderful service and a very accurate and complete report. And you order a W501 is what they're currently calling it, Brewer's Test. <laughs> They've changed the numbers over the years. You pay, you pay your money, you send in your water. You get an emailed report back to you within a couple of days after they get the, the water sample from you. And that water sample report is fantastic. Now, I've talked my water before with uh, Martin on the brew files. And I, you know the, the stuff I get back shows that my water is actually pretty decent. The only problem I have is I have about 168 parts per million of hardness. And I have 51 parts per million of sodium, which is a little higher than what I would like. And part of the reason why this is important is that it, the water will vary greatly over very short distances. So like, for instance, that's my water report for here in Pasadena. There's a brewery about three miles from me called Ogopogo. And Ogopogo, their water is completely different. Their, their hardness is, is much lower. They have uh, much lower uh, calcium and they have lower uh, sulfate and chloride than I do. And that's three, three and a half miles. If you, and if you're going to get a uh, Ward Labs water report, which again we recommend, one thing to be aware of is that they report sulfate as SO4 minus S. Mm -hmm. To convert that into a true sulfate number, you need to multiply the number they give you by three. Yep. So, for instance, here in Drew's, it says that uh, his sulfate as SO4 minus S is 26, yep. but actually the sulfate level comes out to be 78 parts per million is decent start for IPAs. Yay. By the way, the other thing to do is if you have other brewers in your area, talk to them. Like I said, things will definitely change. One of the things I have to do here in LA, and I've got to get back on the stick about this, is I have to actually measure my water over the course of the year and know how things are changing because, again, we get our water from all sorts of different sources and it gets blended together. So, like, for instance, as we're coming out of spring we're going to start getting a lot of very soft Sierra snowmelt water here in LA. So my water will change over the course of the year. And then as the year goes on, it gets harder. Yeah, man. That I mean, in that case, it might not be a bad idea to have your own test kit if you really want to deal with it or just go buy distilled water. I, I'm just really, really fortunate that I can get mine tested every few years and it's the same as it was before. Yeah. Well, and that's the reason why I have the Lamont. Lamont helps me understand if things are shifting. There is a, a meter out there, the IDIP. But I have not played with it, so I can't tell tell you how well that works. And what what is your water like, actually? My water is actually pretty clean. <laughs> I mean, in terms of uh, heavy mineral load, uh, I think that, as I recall, my uh, total alkalinity is like up around ninety eight or something. Maybe it's not even quite that high. But uh, it's got, you know, moderate levels of calcium. Uh, sulfate is really low. So, I, you know, it's, it's not like down to distilled or RO water quality, but it's got a really low mineral load that is real easy for me to work with. Uh, probably about the most I have to do is if I'm making a triple or a pilsner other than a German pilsner, I cut it with some distilled water to drop the mineral content. But if I'm making a German pills, I want that uh, slightly higher sulfate in there so I don't have to do anything. And my water, for instance, because my total alkalinity is like in the 160 area, 170, um, 
I have to be careful about how pale I can go before I have to really worry about what's happening. I have to deal with pH, but I don't really have to deal with minerals for something like a German Pilsner. Now, let's talk about those minerals because there are certain key ones that we want to understand from a brewer's perspective. So there's uh, calcium, which creates hardness. It's important for our yeast health. It's important for yeast flocculation and also for your mash efficiency. Uh, it does lower the pH, but don't do it that way. Use acid. Yeah, it doesn't lower the pH enough to really count unless you're using way too much. And speaking of using way too much, the minimum that you need is you do need about 40 parts per million just to be able to make sure that you get all your mash enzymes working correctly. Next one is magnesium. It, that's the other contributor to hardness. It's also important for yeast health, but a little goes a very, very, very long way. Yeah, and it, it's it's mainly it's mainly an issue if you're going to be saving and reusing your yeast. Now, here's the thing. I rarely ever add any because if you add too much magnesium, it will cause your beer to feel very harsh so and taste astringent. And if you go and you look at like old British brewing books and even old American home brewing books, you'll see people talking about adding Epsom salt to the beer. And that's adding a lot of magnesium. And I don't like it. It's, it's magnesium sulfate, and I do use it every once in a while when I need more sulfate, but my calcium level is already really high. Uh, I'll get that last little bit of sulfate with a, a real small Epsom salt addition. Yeah, but again, small. Small, of course, yeah. Uh, also sodium. So good old sodium. It's a flavor enhancer, as anybody knows. If you ever watch me cook, I'm constantly reaching into the salt can. So a little does go a long way, just like magnesium. It does help to sharpen up the beer. And again, just like magnesium, if you have too much, the final beer is going to taste harsh. So you really don't want to do that. Right. You want to use less as you go more sulfate heavy because it will sort of accentuate each other. And so you, you want to make sure that you're, at least for me, I want to stay under 70 ppm usually. And if you remember my water report, I'm already at 51. So... Right. You know, and the thing is that, uh, you know, sodium, there is seldom a need for in lighter beers. You run across it more uh, if you're using like baking soda to try and raise the pH of a darker beer a little bit. And then speaking of uh, things that we we do like to adjust, and you've already mentioned it a couple of times, sulfate. And it's probably, I would say, America's favorite water salt <laughs> or favorite mineral. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, and... For years, we always been told, oh, well, you know, sulfate yeah, pops your hops out. It accentuates hop bitterness. And the important thing to remember is it's not actually accentuating the hop bitterness. What it's doing is sort of drying out the back end of the beer. It's increasing the apparent dryness, which then allows the hops to shine through more. And so that's the reason why I say it's probably America's favorite. And again, this has a uh, sulfate has a very broad ideal range. Anything from zero, like if you're making a pilsner, all the way up to like 350 if you're making something like a classic Burton ale or Burton IPA. And again, you really only want to step on the gas on this one in my mind if you're trying to accentuate the hops. Now, if you've got sulfate, then the opposite effect happens with chloride, right? The chloride is a negative ion of chlorine. It increases apparent beer fullness. So if sulfate increases the apparent dryness, chloride does the exact opposite, right? It makes the beer body feel fuller and ends up kind of suppressing the hops, and which has the side effect of allowing more of the malt to shine through. And for chloride, 0 to 100 ppm is the ideal range. Uh, don't go overboard with it. I know that some of the 
new uh, hazy IPAs, they really step on the chloride. And I feel with some of them where they go really hard on the chloride is where I get issues with mouthfeel. Right. And we'll, we'll get into that in a minute, but uh, people are really into the idea of the uh, sulfate chloride ratio. And uh, my feeling is that the numbers are a lot more important than the ratio. All right. And then the last mineral that we're going to talk about is bicarbonate, which is a strongly alkaline buffer. It's basically, think of it this way, it resists acidification. We see the impact of bicarbonate all the time whenever we're talking about dark malts, because dark malts will acidify the mash, and the alkalinity will actually help you keep the pH in the right area. And of course, this is part of the reason why London became known for doing porters and stouts, because they have heavily bicarbonate water. Ideal range, 0 to 50 ppm for pale beers, 150 plus for anything dark. That's all well and good and great, but what exactly are we changing as we're adding our salts and our acids? The things that we're changing are pH, right? So the measure of how many hydrogen ions are in the water on a 0 to 14 scale with 0 to 7 being acidic, 7 being neutral, and 7 7 plus being basic. We do not care about water pH. I mean, we do care about our sparge water pH, but we don't care about water pH in terms of the water that's going into the mash. What we care about is the mash pH. And you know what? The way the way that I brew and with my water, I don't even care too much about the sparge water pH. But depending on how you brew and what your base water is like, you may need to. So mine usually needs a little knocking down. So yeah, right. And I I don't really do anything because uh, in batch sparging, if you have the mash pH correct and your water is not too extreme, then you'll maintain a correct sparge pH also. Now, also make sure that you measure your pH at room temperature. I know a lot of people out there go and buy pH meters that, and look, look, it's temperature correcting. <laughs> not that temperature correcting. No, no. Temperature correction corrects for the temperature of the instrument, not the sample. Don't go sticking your pH meter probe into your mash tun unless you want to end up buying new probes all the time. The other thing that we're changing is hardness, right? So it's the, that's the measure of the amount of calcium and magnesium. Temporary hardness can be precipitated via boil. Permanent hardness is kind of bound up with other things. Now, the important thing is you can brew with hard water. There's nothing about having hard water that makes it impossible for you to brew. Yeah, man. You know, I see that all the time, and I I don't know exactly where it came from. People go, oh, I've got hard water. I can't use it for brewing. It's like, not necessarily. Yeah, look at your total dissolved. Yeah, look at your total dissolved solids. And I I suspect some of that's just years of people talking about, you know, the, the Colorado Rocky River water and well, yeah, and you know, and then the the whole thing about, you know, Pilsner or Kell using really soft water so people figure that's appropriate like say for all pilsners, which is of course it's not. Other things that we're changing, alkalinity. We talked a little bit about alkalinity with bicarbonate. It's basically how much buffering capacity your water has. Uh, you can kind of think if pH is a hydrogen uh, concentration, then alkalinity is the carbonate concentration uh, in terms of ions. Right. It's usually uh, expressed as HCO3. Um, and it, basically, it's uh, you know how, how much your water will resist uh, changing in acidification. Uh, alkalinity is one of the big things you need to look at in a water report. And then that plays into something that is very much just a brewing thing. And it's been John Palmer's big, uh, big thing that he's talked about for years, residual alkalinity. And it's a brewing unique me- measurement. And it basically 
measures the remaining buffering power left after you mash in. Because what will end up happening is when you mash in, phosphates in the malt will react with calcium and magnesium in the water. They'll reduce the, the effectiveness of the bicarbonate, and it just measures how much your malt and water will interact and impact the mash pH. You will never hear anybody who is a water nerd talk about this, except for in terms of brewing. Right, right. And this is, again, this is where you want to get your acids out maybe and uh, start adjusting things. Yeah, And then, of course, finally, the last thing we're doing is we are changing the minerals and those minerals are all going to have flavor impacts. Be mindful of the flavor impacts. I always say if you're going to treat minerals as if they're seasoning, really treat them like they're salt, right? You can always add more. You can't take it out. All right. So that's what we're changing, how we change it. We use salts and acids in order to do that. There are primary levers. The salts that we use are calcium sulfate, aka gypsum. And, you know, we use that to adjust the calcium levels and also pop the hop bitterness again by deaccentuating the malt, adding that sulfate, right? The other one is calcium chloride, which is the yang to gypsum's yin. And that's the one that increases your chloride level. So emphasizes the malt, emphasizes the fullness of the beer. And then, of course, you have things like sodium chloride, aka table salt. My very important rule here is remember, it does add sodium, which you have to be careful about, but also don't use iodized salt. (laughs) No, no, go get yourself some good kosher salt or sea salt or something like that. And then we talked about magnesium sulfate earlier, aka Epsom salt. And again, that adds magnesium and it also adds sulfate. So again, remember the warning about magnesium, a little goes a long way. So be careful with the amount that you add. Uh, I tend, uh, again, that's the reason why I tend to shy away from it. Danny, you said that there are times that you like to use it. You use it in small amounts. You're conscious of what you're doing and, uh, and what it's adding to the beer. But again, if you're, uh, if you're really trying to get some uh, sulfate into the beer and your gypsum level has already brought the calcium up real high, then, uh, the magnesium sulfate slash Epsom salts can be a, a good alternative. And then we get into the things that are going to add alkalinity and bicarbonates and all that sort of good stuff. Uh, first one being calcium carbonate, which people have tried to use for years in brewing. You know, it's called chalk, right? And turns out chalk does not dissolve very well. In fact, I think what Martin's advice is to pressurize it with some CO2, right? Yes, it is. Um, but the better advice is just don't use it. And instead, use calcium hydroxide, aka slaked lime or pickling lime. So you can usually find that whenever you get your canning supplies, if nowhere else. And it is very, very potent. Like calcium carbonate will add, you know, somewhere around 300 parts per million per gram that you're adding. The calcium hydroxide adds like 440 parts per million. So adding way more. It does, uh, again, it's adding alkalinity. So you can kind of round off the roasted uh, malt characters. And it's a lot easier to dissolve straight into your water. Definitely, definitely. Much more effective. The other option, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, is sodium bicarbonate, aka baking soda. And again, it increases your bicarbonate level, not nearly as much as chalk or calcium hydroxide, but it also increases the sodium. And one gram per gallon puts the sodium over 70, which is like, as I said earlier, is kind of my dividing line. So I really have to be thinking about it if I'm going to use any baking soda. Yeah, and again, uh, I'm the same way. I use it if I need to make small pH adjustments, but uh, for anything very large, I'll go to the pickling lime. And then speaking of pH and acid and all that sort of good stuff, there are a couple of acids that we do use, like lactic acid. It's very reliable, relatively safe, and you can you can use it. It's one of the weaker ones. At larger doses, tasters can actually detect the lactic tang. 
So you do have to be careful about that. Can you define a larger dose for me? No, because I never get near it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that's what I was getting at. Uh, generally, if you get to the place where you can detect the amount of lactic acid you use, you have another issue that you really need to deal with first. Yeah, that's when you should look at what else you need to do to reduce your alkalinity. If you want to be Reinhardt's compliant, the Germans won't allow you to add lactic acid to your mash. So instead, that's the reason why they have acidulated malt or doing an acid rest. But use the acid. Yeah, it's it's way easier to get the right amount and get what you're going for. And then the other acid that we use commonly, well, actually less commonly for homebrewers, but more commonly at the professional level, and it is becoming increasingly common in the homebrew level, is phosphoric. And so phosphoric acid is a nice, powerful acid that can push through the, the buffering capacity that we have, and it's largely used to adjust mash pH. So you you do see, like, in professional setups and with other people who I know who homebrew who also do professional brews, they'll use phosphoric to adjust the mash, and they'll use lactic acid to adjust their sparge water. Yeah, the trick about phosphoric acid that you do have to worry about is if you're using it in large amounts, but unlikely in our level of usage, you can actually reduce the calcium levels in your water. But you have to be pushing it really hard. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, every time somebody brings that up, uh, Martin jumps in and says, no, at, at the levels we're using, that really isn't going to happen. But that, I'm afraid that's as much of a citation as I can give about that one. Now, there are other acids that are used in brewing. Uh, for instance, in the professional world, you will see sulfuric and hydrochloric acid. Don't do that. Those are actual dangerous acids, and you need to be soberly minded in order to really know what you're doing to handle them, and you're a home brewer. There's really no need on our level. You do see other food acids talked about time to time, particularly in older texts, uh, things like acetic acid, so vinegar, uh, citric, malic, tartaric. They're too weak in my mind, and they are too flavor dominant to really be used to do mash and sparge adjustments. Yeah, I've seen people trying to adjust the mash pH with citric acid, and uh, by the time you get enough citric acid in there to make a difference, you're going to know that it's there. So those are the things that we can use to change. I mean, obviously, there are other things, but those are the big ones. And those are the ones you'll see in all the popular water programs that we'll talk, you know, that, that they give for adjustments. Those are your tools, but as we all know, how you use the tools is actually just as important and how you decide which tool to use. So here are a couple strategies that we will say for choosing better water. And just to remind you, no matter what, get rid of the chlorine and chloramine, get your mash pH to, into that five two five six range. And, you know, this it means using acid, watching the RA numbers or using the calculators and knowing that you've set everything up right. Get your mash calcium to 40 ppm. And do the least you need to do. Don't go crazy. Yeah, and I would say get your mash calcium to at least 40 parts per million. Uh, don't go crazy. Don't. I would say try and keep it under 200. As we pointed out earlier, around 100 is a great level. Ways that people choose their, their water strategy. There are lots of people out there who use beer history. So almost every homebrewing text and judge program sits there and they show you these great water tables for, oh, this is Munich water and this is Edinburgh water and this is London water. And so people will try and use those to make water for as appropriate for the beer style that they're trying to do. My problem with that is, are those water tables right? When were they taken? Where were they taken? And what the heck does the brewery do to treat the water that they're getting out of the city? 
Right. And as our, as our friend Jeff Rankert has pointed out many times, one thing he's learned on his uh, beer tours of Germany is a lot of breweries even have their own wells. So, you know, they might not be using anything like the city water at all. So we really, really recommend that you just ignore city water profiles when you're trying to figure out what you want to do with the water for your beer. And then, of course, since many of us in the homebrewing world are technically minded and we like numbers, there have been multiple approaches developed to try and figure out what to do with your water by numbers. And the big one, of course, that Denny referenced earlier is the chloride sulfate ratio, which, you know, it's basically, it's like, oh, hey, the more chloride you have, the maltier it is. The more sulfate you have, the more bitter it is. And so you'll see things where people throw out like a, a pale ale or an IPA should have a chloride sulfate ratio of one to two, five, uh, or, and you'll see other things where New England IPA, they talk about, oh, it should be two to one, you know, some more chloride and then sulfide. And of course, that might be a little bit of a trick because we've seen differing numbers on that as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and, and again, that's why I don't believe the ratio is as important as the numbers themselves. Um, obviously, 300 chloride to 150 sulfate is going to be a lot different than, say, 150 to 75. So be aware of the ratio just kind of as a guide, but pay a lot more attention to the absolute numbers. Now, other ways, this is, as I kind of think of it, this is sort of the Denny Kahn thinking method, which is by flavor intent. You know, what, what flavor do you intend? Yeah, basically what I do is I take a look at the style of beer I'm making, and uh, I use brune water, and Martin lists water profiles by color and flavor. For example, amber bitter or black full, something like that. So what I do is I go through... I get, I get my flavor additions set to what I want them to be to give me the right flavor in the beer. Then I look at what that does to the pH and adjust the pH based on that. If you start trying to adjust pH, uh, before you have all your flavor minerals in there, then you'll probably end up having to go back and readjust the pH. And as you mentioned, the, the you know, color taste, that's, that's the way I do a lot of this because I think it's a, a lot cleaner. It has never failed me doing that. All right. And so speaking of uh, brewing water, there are a couple of different ways that you can calculate the changes that you made. So one thing to know is all of these tools that you'll see out there, they all have different water models behind them because they're all trying to predict, you know, how malt will interact with water, how the salts will interact with the malt and the, the pH and the RA and all that sort of good stuff. Nobody actually has the perfect answer because it turns out the chemistry is really, really hard. And so the the really important thing is that whatever tool that you're using, make sure that you choose one that is updated, which of course means I'm sorry, Denny, for the loss of your, your ProMash. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I've ever used the water calculator in ProMash. I was just, as a matter of fact, this morning I was having a conversation with uh, Scott Abeen and we may be the last two ProMash users in the world. Two big ones that are out there. There's Beersmith. And Brad's done a lot of work to update his water model. I still have some problems with it. Uh, it's relatively easy to do. And the nice thing is you can carry the water profiles with the recipes very easily. And it's all wrapped up in one tool. But I don't think it works nearly as well as the thing that we've referenced a couple times in the show, brewing water. And of course, if you can go back, you can listen to, I think it was episode 45 of the Brew Files, 41 episodes ago. You can go and listen to him talk about brewing water and how to set it up. And it's just... 
to my mind, it's, it's the best way to do this. Yeah, I agree. And uh, if you have a copy of Simple Homebrewing, and of course you should, uh, then we do a complete walkthrough of brewing water there to kind of like give you a, a, an idea how to use it to get what you're going for. That's where we get the idea of the color taste. And it's super simple. I mean, there is the pain that you are working in a separate tool than where you're necessarily putting your your recipes together. But to me, I think it, there's almost a universal truism that the more focused a tool is on a particular subject, the better it is at that subject. Right. I mean, what I'll do is I'll calculate things in uh, in brewing water, and then I'll go add them to my recipe, what the final adjustments are, and not even bother with the water calculators and other things. A couple tools that you're going to need uh, to get you uh, to make these changes, because remember, a little bit of this stuff goes a long way. You're going to need yourself a nice gram-accurate scale, preferably one that has a 0.1 gram resolution. I have had the same scale for 15 years, 17 years. And I, for years, have used a uh, a reloading scale that you use like for shotgun shells, just because I had it around from a previous life. I recently broke down and bought myself a really nice jeweler scale on Amazon. It was only 20 bucks, and I am just grooving on not having to squint to see those little marks on my old reloading scale. I was going to say, how many grains per gram? (laughs) (laughs) 15.4. You thought I wasn't going to know that, huh? No, I figured you would. (laughs) But I just get tired of doing all the conversions and stuff, and not to mention that uh, I've had that thing for probably – Oh my God, 40 years or more. So the, the scale is kind of wearing off on it. Not, not everything old is gold. Yeah, that's right. Just me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other thing that you probably want to get or at least borrow from somebody that you trust until you start to figure out whether or not all this works is a pH meter. I know a lot of people out there advocate because they're nice and cheap, you know, using those paper strips. I hate those paper strips. Don't do it. Don't do it. Get, get or borrow somebody's pH meter. Uh, make sure it's properly calibrated and use it. And what you'll see a lot of times, and I've seen this in professional breweries as well, is you'll see that once people have figured out what their water is and how it changes, you know, they know, okay, well, I know if I'm going to do a pale ale, I'm going to need, you know, six milliliters of lactic acid in the mash and four in the in the sparge. And then they just run with that. And at the first couple of times, they'll check the pH and make sure everything's fine. And then after that, you just kind of trust the process. Yeah, that's exactly what I did, man. I haven't used my pH meter probably in a year. Uh, but that's because I tend to make the same recipes over and over again. So I, I use it at least the first time on a new recipe to verify that I'm getting the pH that I intended to get. And after that, because my water is so consistent and Martin's spreadsheet is so accurate, uh, I just go with what it tells me and I know that that's going to be right. In terms of the things that you're going to need to do and think about salts, you've got three places to add those, the mash liquor, the sparge water, and the boil kettle. You want to make sure you add your salts to the liquid, not the full mash, right? So before you dough in, get your get your salts in. Uh, brewing salts do, do with the exception of ch- chalk, dissolve easily. And any sort of non-drastic chemistry changes, you can do what Denny does and throw everything into the mash liquor. And also remember that boil additions are primarily just for flavor. Oh, and mouthfeel. Yeah, right. You know, uh, if I'm making an IPA, I will typically throw a teaspoon or two of gypsum right into the kettle with it uh, because I know that uh, the the pH is going to be okay. So that's just an easy way to do it. Yep. Acids. Again, you got two places to add those, the mash liquor and the sparge water. Make sure you add your acids to the water, not the other way around. General chemistry rule. 
even if you're throwing all your salts in the mash, I still like to acidify the sparge water just to avoid tannin extraction. To Denny's point, if you've got your mash pH set correctly in a batch sparge, that's less of an issue. Yeah, unless you have like really, really bizarro water. Um, I, I have tried adjusting my sparge water and not adjusting it and being the pragmatic type, I no longer adjust. And most of the time, I think I'm putting like four milliliters of lactic acid in my sparge and just going, boop, done. And speaking of gonzo water, if you do have gonzo water or you have water like I do and you want to make something really pale, remember, you can't really remove the salts. So if you're like me and you want to do something really super pale, then make sure you also have some clean water on hand, like say RO or distilled. And you can use that to do dilutions. The good thing is things like brewing water will also help you calculate the impact of dilution on your uh, water profile and your adjustments. Yeah, yeah, it's great for that too. I, I always use it when I'm making a triple. I walked through and I actually went to a bunch of people that I know and I trust and I asked them for what they do for their water. And so like a friend of mine in the homebrew club, a guy named John Aitchison, is a master Pilsner brewer. It's his favorite thing in the world to make. And he he does something very simple. He does 50-50 of the LA water and then reverse osmosis water. And that's what he does for his Pilsner to knock all the mineral load down. And we talked about, you see that in other things, like what you're doing with your triple. Talk to Martin Broomgarden just to get his uh, water philosophy. And he said, get the pH in the right range. Get the sulfate and chloride into the right ranges, helpful for the style. And he says ratio is meaningless. Oh, Martin is such a smart guy. Try to have at least 40 parts per million of calcium in the mash. And less is more. So keep the water in the background unless it plays an assertive role in the flavor. Let me tell you, if you're adjusting your water and you're shooting for, say, 75 parts per million of something, and you end up being 70 or 72, that's plenty close enough. Believe me, you're never going to taste the difference. And then, of course, John Palmer, asking him what his water philosophy was, his, he starts with the mash pH, and he says, you know, get the mash pH right first. So 5.2 for pale beers, 5.4 for ambers, 5.6 for dark beers. He, he wants a minimum of 50 parts per million of uh, calcium. And then he just goes and tweaks the chloride and sulfate for the desired effect. Somebody else that you heard about on the show, uh, Craig Chaplin, when we did the whole triple IPA recipe last year, Craig likes to do all of his pH adjustments in the mash with uh, phosphoric acid. And then he does about eight grams of gypsum to his mash and about eight grams of gypsum to the boil. And that's how he makes the, the hop character on the triple IPA really kind of pop up. And then for me, what I'll do is for most of my pale and amberish beers that aren't like exceedingly hoppy, I'll make sure I get the chlorine out. I'll make sure my acid's right. And then I do nothing else. And I just let my water ride. Because for those beers, my water actually worked pretty damn well. And then if I'm going to do for lagers, I'll tend to run everything to full profiles in brewing water. So like pale full. If I'm doing hoppy ales, I'll go for a dry profile because, again, that's accentuating the sulfate. And then for most other things, I just kind of run for a balanced addition. And I don't usually add salts to the boil because I usually find that I'm, I'm getting enough flavor impact from the stuff I'm adding in the mash. So what kind of profile in general do you use for a Saison? A lot of times for a Saison, I use a dry. Uh-huh. That makes perfect sense. I want to pop some of that hoppy character to it, um, and I like to accentuate how far the back end of the beer can drop, which is what those dry profiles do. Right. So you'd go for like a, a yellow dry or something like that. Yeah, usually. Makes makes perfect sense to me. And for you, sir, what do you do? 
Well, you know, like I said, uh, generally when I'm making an IPA, I don't do anything because I know that like using the crystal malt or even the pale malt in the recipe is going to pull the pH down into the right range. So I don't really need to think about that. So I'll just throw a teaspoon or two of gypsum into the kettle. Uh, if I'm making a pilsner, I go a little bit more intense. Uh, I make German pills. I don't, I don't go for the, uh, like the Bohemian pills as much. So for my German pills, I'll probably end up with a little bit of added sulfate, a little bit of added chloride, and, uh, then some lactic acid to pull the pH, uh, down. And if I'm making a triple, then I'll start by cutting my water with distilled because I want to get the mineral levels down a little bit lower for a triple. And then from that point on, I'll worry about pH. So before we leave this uh, thorough, basic exploration of water, <laughs> anything else we should add? No, I, I again, well, I said no, and then I'm going to start adding stuff. Um, the, the important thing is be aware of what you've got. Be aware of what you want to end up with. Do the least you can do to get there. Uh, prefer distilled water over RO. At least that's what I prefer. Um, and just, you know, play around and see what's happening. You know, uh, you're never going to know how it works for you until you try it. Yeah. Play. You're being a brewer. You're playing yeah. at being a brewer. Have some fun. And it's chemistry. So it's always a little fun. Right, and you probably won't have to dump out 300 barrels if you don't like it. Thank the maker. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of water and how it impacts, what it does, and what we can do to make changes. If you get started, I think you'll be amazed at exactly what sort of impact that you have. And remember, it seems intimidating, but it's really not. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And, of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA. Amazon, Brewers, Friends, and BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called Not One More Vet, an organization that uh, supports vets and some of their mental struggles. Veterinarians have a really, really high rate of suicide, and, uh, you know, they take care of our furry buddies, so let's take care of them. Throw us a few bucks, we'll pass it along. And until next time, remember to always brew wacky... Or brew experimentally... And the brew is out there. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malthouse Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. 
Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. 